And now it's time on Flame CCR to take a look behind the studio's green door to find out who is in today's chat room. Midnight, one more night without sleeping. Watching till the morning comes creeping. Green door, what's that secret you're keeping? And now, are you listening? Hello, my name is John Sheik, and I'm delighted to say that I'm back in the surroundings of the Inspire Coffee House at St. Luke's Church in Wallasey. And Inspire is a fabulous new cafe coffee house with great food and great interior design as well. And the staff aren't bad either. When you're out and about in Wallasey and you need a break, why not drop into the Inspire Coffee Bar? The Inspire Coffee Bar at St. Luke's. On the corner of Mill Lane and Breck Road, you'll get a great welcome, a great atmosphere, and of course, great coffee. We also serve lovely food in fantastic, unique surroundings, and cater for those with special dietary needs, including vegans and celiacs. The Inspire Coffee Bar are a social enterprise, and believe strongly in giving back, so come and be part of our wonderful Inspire community. The Inspire Coffee Bar is open Monday to Friday, 9am to 4pm, and Saturdays, 10am to 4pm. Look us up on Facebook to find news of the latest special events. The Inspire Coffee Bar. Come and join the Inspire community. And joining us today is a member of the staff here, somebody who is well known in churches across Merseyside. He's a lay reader at St. Luke's Church here in Wallasey, and his name is Rob Woodburn. And Rob, just for the sake of those few listeners who don't know you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Well, hi, John. It's great to welcome you back to uh, Inspire again. It's good, it's good to be able to talk to the listeners at Flame. My name is Rob Woodburn. I'm a reader here at St Luke's Parish Church in, in Wallasey. I'm also a director of the Inspire Coffee Bar and do most of the accounts and payroll for the cafe as well. I'm recently retired, although I don't feel very retired because the church work has kind of taken up my life over the last couple of years. I'm married to Beverly and we've been, been married for 40 years next year. We have two wonderful boys, Matthew and Ben. Matthew is currently um, visiting his fiancée's parents in the Philippines. He's in Manila, so we're really praying for him at this time of the year, other side of the world. Ben is married to Rachel, and he's living still here in Wallasey. We see him regularly. My ministry here at St Luke's involves preaching normally twice a month. I lead worship regularly, and I'm also very much involved in the work of Wallasey Churches together. I'm very keen to build links between churches and see what we can do together to further uh, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ here in this part of the world. Thanks, Rob. Rob, can I take you all the way back to the beginning? I'm not a native of these parts, as you can probably tell. I think you're a little bit more of a native. Go back to the beginning. Where was home? Where was upbringing for you? Well, I was actually born and bred here in Wallasey. I was born at what used to be called the Highfield Maternity Hospital, which is about a quarter of a mile up the road from this very building. So I haven't moved very far geographically over the course of my life. I've lived in Wallasey all my life. I was married at the age, age of 21, actually, and we bought our first home here, here in Wallasey. And we still live about a mile from the church in what's called Wallasey Village area of Wallasey. So, yeah, Wallasey is home to me, and I love living here. It's a great part of the world, whereas a hidden gem really is so much variety, so much to see here, so much to enjoy. Good shops, good transport, beautiful local amenities. We're only a few miles from the Welsh mountains. We've got Liverpool over the water and all all, all that's got to offer. New Brighton is booming these days, so it's a great place to live. And Rob, I have a very important question to ask you, therefore. In football terms, are you a red or a blue or a white? I'm definitely a blue. I can actually pinpoint the very day I became an Everton fan because it was the, the FA Cup final 1966, Everton versus Sheffield Wednesday. It was World Cup year, so my interest in football went through the roof that year. But that cup final particularly when we came back from being 2-0 down and won the cup final 3-2. Such vivid memories. The following season, my dad took me along to an Everton home game and my allegiance was sealed at that time. And the girls got a deep affinity with Everton and 
follow their results very, very closely. I always feel very optimistic at the, at the start of any new season. It's back to one of the more poorest seasons we ever remember last year. I think this, this year we're, we're moving in the right direction, so I'm looking forward to that. And I have a soft spot for Everton and for Goodison Park because I went there once on a Southend United supporters coach for the FA Cup third round. And Southend lost 1-0 to a brilliant goal from Peter Beardsley more than years ago. But Rob, I think you go back a little bit further than me. Perhaps growing up, I think maybe in the 60s, what was life like for you? Did you have a church upbringing? Very much did, yes. Although I didn't belong to this church in those days. I was baptised and brought up at St Paul's Church in Seacombe, which is about two miles down the road. And our vicar here at St Luke's is also vicar at St Paul's these days. So I must feel like I've come full circle, really. I was brought up in the church there, baptised there. I was confirmed there at the age of 12 in, in 1969. And one of the strange things that happened immediately after being confirmed is that I actually moved churches. I was struggling a bit with church life at St Paul's and a friend of mine at school was a member of the choir here at St Luke's and invited me to come along once and to St Luke's and I was blown away by the place. We had a very charismatic vicar in those days, Reverend Trevor Jones. The church was packed every Sunday. We had uniformed organisations, brownies, guides, boys' brigade, a, a very good choir. So I decided to give St Luke's a go. And I've been coming here ever since. I've been a member of St Luke's for 50 years next year. I joined in 1970 at the age of 12. So I've got a long affinity with this church. I've still got many friends down at St Paul's. It was my parents' church. So i actually delighted to be kind of renewing the links I have down there as well in Seacombe. And I think it, that puts me in, in a unique place, really, because uh, I feel like I've got a strong allegiance to both churches. And therefore, I can help Peter our vicar to build bridges between the two churches and work together for the firm of the gospel across two very deprived parishes here in Wallasey. Rob, you said the year 1970 and you mentioned the charismatic Trevor Jones. I wasn't using the word necessarily in that sense, but he, but he, was, he was certainly very strongly gifted and the literal meaning of the word charismatic. Trevor was one of those people, if you met him, introduced yourself to him, he would always remember your name. He was a very personable minister, very, very good pastor and deeply loved by the people here at St Luke's. Trevor's daughter Sue is still our church warden here and certainly his ministry had a tremendous impact upon this area back in the 1970s. He was vicar here from 1960 to 1980 so he had a long period of ministry here and I, I guess that many of the congregation who are coming here today owe their Christian allegiance to, to Trevor's ministry so certainly he, he was gifted in many ways and in my opinion was, was certainly much used by God and, and gifted by that by the Holy Spirit. Rob you mentioned that there's members of the congregation here today who owe their faith to Trevor in reality, for yourself, you've mentioned confirmation and, and baptism. But what does your faith, or certainly at the time when you joined St. Luke's, when you became a Christian, what was the basis of your faith? Why do you believe? I think looking back on my life, I can see a number of stage posts which have, have led me to where I am today. I talked about confirmation. That happened in 1969. I was confirmed by Bishop Eric Mercer, who went on to become Bishop of Exeter. I don't remember all of what he said in his sermon that night, but uh, I went into, into that process not really expecting too much. I found the confirmation classes were a bit dry, not very exciting. But, but coming to the confirmation service, I can remember the bishop saying something very significant to me or during the course of his sermon. He said, what you're receiving tonight is a gift, but it's not the kind of gift that you can take home and put in a cupboard and bring out when you're feeling holy. And that really got my imagination going. And when I came forward to be confirmed and had the bishop's hands placed on my head, I, there was certainly a deep sense of expectancy in me. I knew I was receiving something and certainly I felt changed by the process. And it was a kind of a spiritual awakening, which is an unusual thing to say when you're only 12 years old. But that to me was not exactly the beginnings of my life of faith, because I still remember a lot of my Sunday school teaching down at St Paul's. 
But something happened that night which moved me forward at God and uh, opened up a whole a whole new element to me. And maybe that's because when I became, began to be, be a bit dissatisfied with what I was getting out of St Paul's, because there was something new unfolding that I didn't quite know what it was, but I knew I had to go somewhere else to fully explore it, if that makes sense. Would that be the work or the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life and wider? I think it almost certainly was, although I probably wouldn't have called it that at the time. Certainly that's when I felt my relationship with God really started. I can remember one of our former vicars here once saying to me that God has no grandchildren, only children. So we, we have to claim the faith for ourselves. I hugely value my Christian upbringing. As I say, my father was church organist for 25 years at St Paul's. My mum was a Sunday school teacher. So really, I had no chance of, of getting out of going face-to-face with Christian reality. I could always have rebelled, of course, but that never really crossed my mind. To me, it was just part of life. Going to Sunday school, going to church on Sunday was part of a normal pattern of life for me and my sisters. But certainly, there comes a point in life where you have to own the faith for yourself. And I guess that's why I understood the day I was confirmed, that I'd made certain promises. I'd promised to turn to Christ, to repent of my sins, and to renounce evil. Those were three key confirmation promises, and I took them very seriously. You know, it was a definite decision to follow Christ that day. I hadn't worked out anything like the full implications of that at the time. But looking back on where I've gone in life, that was such a key moment for me. And Rob, if I can ask you to really go back to the far distant reaches of your memory. At the time, what did God seem like to you at that time? I guess up until that time, God was a kind of a distant figure. He wasn't exactly the old man in, in, in the sky, but you accepted him as the one who made everything there is. But that kind of made him almost seem a bit distant and unapproachable. And uh, suddenly I was finding a different kind of reality. My understanding of God was suddenly being quite radically reshaped. And it was a bit hard to handle as a teenager. But certainly I did make those promises seriously. And I think having responded to God and made those promises, God then begins to reveal reveal himself to you. He doesn't do so all at once, but uh, there are aspects of God's nature which were, were becoming clearer to me. I joined the church choir here at um, St Luke's. It's a bit strange because I, I never felt moved to join the choir at St Paul's, even though my dad was organist and choir master there. I always enjoyed music and I always enjoyed singing, so that was a new departure to me. And somehow the discipline of going to church, morning evening prayer, introduced me to the things of God. And, and I came to value the theology behind the hymns that we sing. I came to love the Psalms. We always used to sing Anglican chants here. At we didn't do it anymore, unfortunately. But that was a great discipline because there's such wonderful poetry in the Psalms, such wonderful theology, and it explores the whole of human life. They're full of thanksgiving, they're full of repentance where the psalmist has gone wrong. It's um, full of life, really, full of questions. Why is life so unfair at times? Why, why do the wicked prosper? That kind of thing comes through the psalms. And so I guess that my theology was being shaped by those experiences over those years. Thank you.
Rob, if we talk about those years when you were a teenager, growing up in Merseyside, when there was a lot happening, the Beatles, I think, might still have just about been together at the time. There was the Mersey scene with all the Liverpool poets, plus so much going on with cultural life on Merseyside. What was it like to be a teenager and a new Christian? What was it like being a Christian back then, late 60s, early 70s? Easy? It wasn't easy. I didn't kind of embrace the popular culture of the time. But certainly, late 60s, early 70s, I was discovering popular music. I enjoyed a lot of the glam rock scene in the early 1970s. Groups like Wizard, Slade, Sweet, T-Rex, David Bowie. It was a very colourful era. But at the same time, a lot of those songs that were written at that time were actually quite profound. And I think it was a desperate attempt in those days to discover real meaning in life. We'd come out of the kind of hippie culture of the late 60s, the summer of love and so on. And I think popular songs were really trying to explore and get to grips with the meaning of life and why is life the way it is. I think there was a, a huge spiritual content in a lot of the songs that were sung at the time. So yeah, but that also helped to shape my belief. I didn't really see too much of a conflict with what I believed as a Christian. Certainly, I think that the kind of drug scene and the psychedelia that went on at that time was a kind of a rebellion against life the way it was. I think young people in those days were looking for a new kind of freedom. We kind of come out of the austerity of the, of the, of the post-war years and, and we, we were becoming more prosperous as a nation. We had more leisure time. That was opening up to us. And I can remember in those days, Sundays were really quite different to what, what they are today. Most of the shops were closed, you wouldn't, wouldn't go shopping on a Sunday. Most of the pubs didn't open until later. But there was an explosion in, the, in those years. And new freedoms were being discovered, which became more fully realised in the 1980s, 1990s. I didn't really necessarily agree with that at the time, because I, I do think we need that sense of keeping Sunday special. I think it's gone too far now. But certainly we've moved away from what we were doing in those days. Society has changed hugely over those years and uh, it's, I think why the church today is it's trying to struggle somewhat because it, it, it's remained mired in the culture of what was happening 40, 50 years ago. It's, it's not really caught up with the way that the world has moved on. These are all very interesting comments and I'm aware that as we've been talking, David Bowie has been playing in the background a track called Ashes to Ashes. This time, Rob, that you're talking about the so-called glam rock era of early Bowie, Bowie himself would have brought up songs with profound lyrics like Starman and Life on Mars. And years later, David Bowie went on record as saying that all throughout that period and probably throughout his whole career and his music and everything, underneath it all, he said he could see that it was really a search for God. And sort of early 70s, mid-70s, were people searching for God that you could see? Or were we becoming increasingly materialistic? I think there's, there's always a sense of, of popular cultures searching for God. I mean, the Beatles discovered that, didn't they, back in the mid-60s when they got involved with the Maharishi Yogi and, and uh, got involved in the transcendental meditation, all that kind of thing. I think popular songwriters have, have always tried to find meaning in life. And I think that's, that's part of what the whole experience has been all about. It's finding real meaning in life. 
and I don't think institutional religion necessarily did it for people. I think Mick Jagger's on record as saying that he thinks Jesus Christ is wonderful, but doesn't like the church. He thinks the church does more harm than good. He's expressing something there which I think was endemic at the time. I think people were dissatisfied with the state of organised religion, but never turned their back on spirituality. There was that kind of search for a deep spiritual meaning to life. And I think people are rediscovering that these days too. It's said we live in a very secular society, and yet I sense that people are looking for meaning in in all of that. So they really need to need to look for meaning in life and, and what life is really all about. Why am I here? What was I born to do? That, that kind of question is still being asked, and we need to find answers for it. Rob, in the meantime, I'm presuming you left school, you went out to work. You carried on within the church. How was life changing, developing for you in those times? Well, I left school in 1974 after my O-levels. I passed five GCSEs, including math and English, so that was good. I got my first job with Royal Life Assurance, based in the live buildings in Liverpool in 1974, immediately after leaving school, and I was with them for 26 years did a variety of roles with Royal Liver and ended up on the personnel department eventually. But although I hadn't, I hadn't stayed on for A-levels, I was very conscious that, that I wanted to do something further to kind of complete my education. So I, I actually went to college and took some insurance exams through the Chartered Insurance Institute, just trying to learn more about the kind of industry I was involved in. And that's how I met, met my wife, because Beverly also worked for Royal Liver and she also was on the same course. We went to Millbank College of Commerce in Tubrook in Liverpool. I got the number 12 or 12C bus out from the pier and every, every Tuesday lunchtime. Met and talked on, on that bus there and back and got to know her through that. So we met at a very young age, both of us 16 or 17 going to college, to those early years in Royal Liver really. And Rob, did you fancy her straight away, or was it the other way round? Or absolutely, it was, it, I wouldn't say love at first sight, but I was certainly very attracted to Beverly. And, although it did take me three months to work up the courage to ask her out, <laughs> I found out that she was very interested in ballet, and I'd never actually been to see a ballet. And the, the Royal Ballet were coming to the Empire, to the Royal Court Theatre, rather to do uh, Giselle. And I know she wasn't interested in that, so so I said, "Well, maybe we go together. You can educate me about the final points of ballet." And uh, you know, she took me up on that. We that we got tickets, and and the rest is history. Really, we, we did didn't look back from, the, from, that, from that first time, time together. So we were courting for, for about a year before I proposed. I proposed Christmas 1976. I proposed. And she said yes straight away on the condition that we bought our own house, which would probably be unthinkable these days for a couple of 18 year olds to say, well, we're going to buy a house before we get married. But that was the norm in those days, I suppose. So uh, we managed to find enough for a deposit between us. I went out and bought our first house at the end of 1977. And I can remember coming to choir practice here at church one Friday night and saying to one of the guys in the choir, I just signed my first mortgage today. And I was 18 years of age when I did that. So that was quite amazing. He was quite taken aback by that. But uh, we got married in the spring of 1979. I was 21 and Beverly was 20. So ridiculously young now thinking about it to get married but having said that we have our 40th anniversary next year and it'd be nice to approach an event like that and still be able to enjoy it in either the first push of old age or the last push of middle age however you want to put it so i've no regrets about that and the fact that we together now 40 years has meant it stood the test of time really so so i've no regrets at all about that very drastic step we took to tie the knot and get married at that time And Rob, I get the feeling that home life, work life and church life was to be pretty good for quite a while after that. And I think you went on to have a family. Can you tell us a little bit about the next decade or two, particularly with regards to church life? Well, the 80s was a very significant decade for me. The fact we had, had a three-year courtship meant that Beverly could could see how committed I was to, was to the church. She didn't go to her own church in, in Haswell, but came and joined this church at, at St Luke's first after we started going out together. So she kind of bought into all that, but I was following a higher calling, if you like. We had our first child. Uh, Jenny was born in October 1983. She was born six weeks premature, so it was a bit of a shock to both of us. But she was a great joy to us. She was born in 83. 
Our eldest son Matthew followed in like '86, and the youngest one Ben. There was a six-year gap between him and Matthew, so our, our children are spaced over nine years. But uh, back in the mid '80s, things really changed quite radically for me because I, I was getting deeper and deeper into the Christian faith. And at that time, I was working with a guy at the liver called Colin Orr, who is now lead pastor at King's Church in Birkenhead. He gave up his time with, 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 with Liver to do that. And he kind of opened up a whole new dimension to faith for me, because King's Church is a Pentecostal church. They're very much into baptism of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts and so on. So I was discovering that. And Billy Graham came to England in like '84 to do Mission England and went along to Anfield. And Beverly came along too. And I went with King's Church. They had the coach going Billy Graham every night. And we stood on the cop, which was a thing I never thought I'd be doing as an Evertonian. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I found myself standing there, responded to Billy Graham's message that night, and found myself on the, at the pitch side when he made his call to get up out of your seat and come forward and give your life to Christ. I'd said that I'd already done that, but now something newer and deeper was opening up to me. So I went forward at Mission England again. That was a significant stage post in my life. And can it be that I should gain An interest in the Saviour's blood Died he for me who caused his pain led me towards ministry because now suddenly I wanted to get much more involved in the life of the church. So I'd sung in the choir for 14 years by now and church is very much a part of my life but I can see that our vicar was struggling a bit. He was approaching retirement. We had no curate here and there was very little lay involvement in those days in ordering the services. And in 1986, our vicar asked me if I would lead a Lenten study group. He could see that my spiritual life was kind of developing at that time. So I did that. I led the study group. And it was so successful, we actually went on beyond Lent that year. 
met the sun time afterwards and Joe Buttonart, our vicar at that time, could see that it had gone well and he said to me one day, have you ever considered training to be a reader? Now, a reader is like a licensed minister within the Church of England, uh, licensed to take services, to preach and to do a bit of pastoral work as well. Uh, it certainly wasn't as uh, demanding as the world is today. And thought about it, prayed about it for a while, talked it out with Beverly and thought, well, yes, I'd like to go for that. And that began kind of three years training for me in the reader ministry. The training is quite onerous, but nothing like it onerous as it is today. We did a year on the Bible, we did a year on church history, and we did a year on ethics, sort of modern issues like abortion, that kind of thing, uh, sexuality, all, all those kind of things. So it was full on for three years, and I was licensed as a reader in 1990. So I've been, I've been a reader here now for 28 years this year. So it's, it's been a hugely rewarding part of my life. I believe I've grown into the role over the years. I've learned so much, you know, about theology and about what it means to be a Christian. I've worked alongside some wonderful ministers here who've encouraged me along the way. The congregation here is really supportive as well. So that's really a massive step I took at that time to become a reader and, and to enter into the ministry of the church in that way. And ever since 1990, I dare say, life as a lay reader within the Church of England, Rob, has been pretty full on for you and very rewarding, very rich in so many ways. And I get the feeling that life is very rewarding and very rich for you for a long period through the 90s and into the noughties. Up until about four or five years ago, when life began to suddenly become very different for you and the family, circumstances suddenly took on an alarming change. They did rather, yes. I mentioned my daughter Jenny, who was born in 1983. She was a great source of joy for us. To say she was born six weeks premature, she was, she was about four pounds when she was born, little tiny scrap, she could almost fit into the palm of my hand, she was so small. But she grew into a, a tall, strapping girl, loved the outdoor life. She was in the scouts, did canoeing, she did hiking around Europe, all kinds of things. She met her husband-to-be, Chris, just after she, she finished her, her A-levels and she was about to start university. University. She went off to, off to university at Aberystwyth in 2004, studied politics and, in, and international developments, loved doing her degree, worked really, really hard and got a 2-1 from Aberystwyth. She did very, really well. The first Christmas she was at university, she met her boyfriend Chris the previous summer. He was in the army. He was an engineer based in Dishforth in Yorkshire, so no sooner had they really met and got to know each other that she was off to uni, he was off to, off to the army. But they came to stay at the Christmas she was back from uni and he took me to one side in the, the kitchen over that period and said I have something to ask you I want to ask for the hand of your daughter in marriage and Jenny at that time was just on 20 she, and she hadn't really known him that well but I could see she, they were really really fond of each other they liked the same things so I had no objections to it although I did say to him I wanted to get through a degree first before you decided to go ahead with it but I had nothing to worry about because it was a very very long engagement they actually got married uh, let me see six years later in 2010 what happened was that when Jenny left university she couldn't find her find a job locally but she was offered a job with Stockport Council so uh, she got a job back to out in Stockport and did a house share for a while out in Stockport but Chris her fiance decided they wanted to be together so they decided to purchase a flat together in Stockport so we did that and got married in St Anne's Church in Manchester which is a quite a, a famous church in Manchester in St Anne's Square and they got married there in 2010. Uh, so everything was going along really swimmingly. They were, they were so happy together for the next three and a half years. Life was so exciting. They were, they were doing so much together. They were so much in love. It was incredible. But then in, in 2014, things took a really, really sad turn because Jenny had been suffering from digestive problems for quite some time. The doctor couldn't quite get to the heart of it. But on Valentine's Day 2014, she was in a lot of pain, being physically sick. And with it being a Saturday, Bella suggested that she went along to A&E to get checked over. And she did that. And they admitted it because, because they found a, a lump in the area of her liver and did various tests. And it was apparent that things looked pretty bad. It was a lot like cancer and it had already spread to other, other parts of the body. They were doing various tests, 
over the coming days, including a liver biopsy, which they did on the following Wednesday, five days after she was admitted to hospital, because they really wanted to try and get to the heart of where exactly the main cancer was. They did say that the prognosis was not good and that any care that they were going to be able to offer was likely to be palliative rather than curative. So we were suddenly faced with an absolutely horrific situation. She was certainly very frightened by all that was going on. It was, you know, it's very hard for someone who's only 30 years old and who thinks you've got the whole of your life ahead of you to actually deal with that. But in hours of the biopsy happening, Jenny unfortunately went into cardiac arrest. Basically, she'd suffered an internal bleed and sadly, they weren't able to bring her back. So she passed away on the 18th of February, 2014. And understandably, we were absolutely devastated by that first child is always always so very precious to you we were looking forward to so many years watching them grow together as a, as a couple and suddenly she wasn't there anymore and it was really really hard to handle it affected both me and beverly deeply i think in a way it, it seems like it was harder for me externally Beverly seemed to be coping with it. She was holding herself together better than I was. But I think actually there was deep hurt and anguish there, which is still being felt today. But I was working full time at that time for British Telecom. I'd moved from Oliver to BT back in 2000. So I'd done 14 years with BT, involved with the rollout of high fibre broadband. Quite a pressurised job that I felt I wasn't coping at all well in, in the wake of my bereavement. I have to say my employers, British Telecom, were absolutely brilliant over those months following my bereavement. I, I had two sessions of counselling, two different sessions of counselling organised through BT, which was really helpful. It certainly helped me carry on for the next year and a half. But there was an opportunity in 2015 for me to take early release. I was 58 at the time and felt I wasn't coping well with work and I just felt that my life needed to take a different turn both in fairness to me and also in fairness to BT so I I took the step of taking what I call early retirement in 2015 shortly after that I lost my mum as well she'd been ill for some time we lost her her in the following January so my life was pretty much in turmoil at the time looking back on it we had a change of minister here at St Luke's too over that period, which is a very difficult period for the church. So there was just so many things kind of pressing in on me at the time. It was hard to see how to cope with all that really.
times like that how do you cope how do you cope first of all the shock to lose your own daughter and within the space of the diagnosis of less than 24 hours how on earth does anyone cope with a shock like that it's uh, enormously difficult. I don't think I ever asked the question, why? I remember feeling deeply hurt by the fact that there's something so precious that had filled my life with such joy and suddenly been snatched away from me. I couldn't understand the reasoning behind that. Didn't seem to make any sense to me. You know, where was God in all this? But strangely enough, I took comfort in those days from the book of Job. Job, in the Old Testament, underwent huge suffering. He lost his, all his children, his livestock, everything went. His health suffered, he broke out in boils. And there's a very significant moment in the very first chapter of Job where his wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? How can you continue to believe in God in the midst of all this? And Job says to her, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that text, I, I kind of turned that over and over in my mind at the time and thought, well, I can accept that it's the Lord's prerogative to give and to take away. He is sovereign on that. He alone determines how many years we have on this earth. So I can accept that, but it's very difficult to say in the midst of all that, blessed be the name of the Lord. Yet that's what Job did. And the following Sunday, I still hadn't bought into that text fully, but I went along with Beverly to St Hilary's Church, which is our parish church. I didn't want to come here to St Luke's that particular Sunday. I just needed some private space, if you like, to grieve and to think things through. And the very first song that we sang at that service was a Matt Redmond song called Blessed Be Your Name, which is really almost paraphrasing what Job was saying, saying at that time. You know, thank God for the good times and the bad times. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. Where your streams of abundance flow Blessed be your name Blessed be your name When I'm found in the desert place Though I walk through the wilderness Blessed be your name Every blessing you 
song is blessed be the name of the Lord blessed be your name blessed be the name of the Lord blessed be your holy name and before I even realized what the lyric was I found myself singing it and I had to sit down in the middle of the service because it was just so overwhelming that I was singing out those words it never occurred to me not to sing just to stop singing I just didn't want to do that so I sang them and suddenly it was almost as though a key had turned in the lock and suddenly I had the first kind of glimmer of how I was going to get through this. Because really it's all about trust. You have to trust in God in the good times as well as the bad times. No matter what life sends you away, God's name is still to be blessed and his purposes for us are sure and they're steadfast and nothing can overwhelm those plans that he has for us. It says in, in Romans 8 that all things work together for good in those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And we have to go on believing that, no matter how dark life can be sometimes. God is at work in us, he's working his purposes out through us. And though we don't understand all that's going on in our lives, you know, there's a higher purpose at work and I'm convinced that, that there is a reason for all this and that one day I'll, I'll be able to see and to work out what it all is. Thank you, Rob. And I know just how much emotionally just giving that answer has been for you right now. If you don't mind me asking, in the immediate aftermath of that shock bereavement of the loss of your daughter, how dark was it? It was really dark. 
I mean, I don't know how it affected my ministry here. Looking back on it now, I only took that one Sunday away from church life. We were in interregnum here at the time, so we had no minister. So I didn't feel I could afford to stand back from what was going on here in, in the church. It was a very important time in the life of this church. We weren't actually in this building at the time. We'd actually moved out of St Luke's. We were meeting at a local primary school. So it was really difficult for us. Our long-term future was far from certain. Looking back on it now, I really should have taken more time to get myself together. I don't know how good my preaching was in those days. Certainly, it felt very dark. I have to say the congregation here were enormously supportive. They kind of allowed me to grieve, and they lightened the burden for me as much as they could. But they were hugely challenging days. And doing a full-time job as well, it almost felt impossible Sundays to get up and function. Just to go through the normal functions of life was difficult. Going to a station and buying a train ticket was difficult. <laughs> and, and yet I was having to, to go on doing this quite uh, challenging job and to work at my ministry here at St Luke's at the same time. But God is good, God is faithful. And he gives us strength when we don't appear to have any strengths. You know, he enables us to live above our circumstances in a way which, looking back on it now, would seem impossible. And yet we coped, we got through it, and uh, life is slowly returning to some kind of normality for us. But even now, sort of four and a half years on it, it's still difficult. Life is still not how you want it to be. But nevertheless, I'm conscious always of the hand of God upon all I'm doing. And that he is still at work in my life and still enabling me to make a difference here at St Luke's and, and within my own family as well. Rob, I know this conversation is taking an emotional toil out of you. So I'll ask one more question, Rob. For anybody listening to this who might be experiencing very recent bereavement or any other sort of shock news, is there anything you would say to them? Any advice or any encouragement you would say to somebody who perhaps has just recently lost somebody very close, very dear to them? Is there anything you can say? Yeah, I think think the most important thing for people in that situation is take time to grieve. Yeah, I didn't do that enough, but someone says to me, well, time heals. Well, it hasn't healed me yet, that's all I can say. Particularly in those early weeks, early months, immediately after that kind of experience. Just take time, take time out, spend time with God. To look at those scriptures, like the book of Job, which deal with grief at a very profound level. 
and, and just remember that you're never alone in those experiences. One of the wonderful things about being part of a church is that you share in life's joys and sorrows, but there is always somebody who can come alongside you and can take you through those times. You know, I would never have got through this experience on my own. Being part of a Christian community makes all the difference. I don't know how people who haven't got a faith can cope with circumstances like that. Because there would almost seem to be no hope, no light at the end of a tunnel. So take time to grieve and take time to get alongside people who God has sent you a way to help you through it and to enable you to grieve and somehow to grow closer to God through it all. You're listening to Flame Radio. My name is John Cheek, and it has been a real honour and a privilege to be with our studio guest, the lay reader, the director of the Inspire Coffee House, Rob Woodburn. Rob, many, many thanks indeed. Thank you, John, and all the best to all listeners. Five a day, meals for the hungry and the thirsty. Bite-sized faith food from the heart of God by the pen of David Robinson. In Five a Day, you will find life-giving words that will inspire, encourage, motivate, challenge and bless you. Today's chef is Robert. 1. Moses trusted God to deliver the Israelites at the Red Sea. Joseph trusted God while he languished in the Pharaoh's prison. David trusted God for a victory when he was facing down Goliath. Jonah trusted God to answer his prayer in the belly of the whale. Trust him, for he really is trustworthy. 2. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name will trust in him, for the Lord have never forsaken those who seek him. Psalm 9 verses 9 and 10. And that includes you. 3. Your treasure is love from the God who created love. It's grace and peace from the God of all comfort. Security, protection and provision from the God who is all-powerful. Your treasure is acceptance and eternity from God who sacrificed his own son that we could gain it. God is asking only one question of you today. Do you trust me? 4. Doubt, fear and unbelief are the enemies of our faith and without faith it is impossible to please our God. Hebrews 11.6 So fight these hell-bred diseases of the soul and trust Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12.2 5. Don't believe everything that people say, especially what they say of you. The religious leaders said, but Jesus was of the devil. Matthew 10.25 May the Lord bless you with his health, his peace, his provision, his joy and his wholeness. Five a day, meals for the hungry and the thirsty. We've closed the chat room door, but please tune in next time to Flame CCR on 1521 Medium Wave for more from Green Door Studios chat room. Green Door! We hope you enjoyed this programme, which is under the copyright of Wirral Christian Media Limited. Details of the Flame CCR broadcasts and webcasts are on our website, www.flameradio.org. Thank you for listening. Flame.